bookstore with a bizarre name of The Other Change of Hobbit. As if The Change of Hobbit isn't a weird enough pun, this was The, the Other Change of Hobbit, because there was already a, a store called The Change of Hobbit, so they had to distinguish themselves. Um, and Stan was, was there, talk, probably talking about, well, I don't know, in 88, what book would you have been talking about? The Gold Coast. The Gold Coast, right. Uh, and, um, I should I, have called it my Orange County crime novel. But right. Go ahead. Orange County. <laughs> so, and I, I brought, I pressed this into your hands. Yes. And at that point, you were already doing what you just did, which is you were saying, "Oh, that book! I can't believe someone's handing me that book." In 1988, it was relatively yes. fresh item. But so you uh, studied with Frederick Jameson, and he was your dissertation advisor when you wrote about Philip K. Dick, who, it should be said, at that time was not, uh, among the many things that had not conquered the world from science fiction, Philip K. Dick was an out-of-print uh, novelist for the most part. He had basically, in 88, he probably had two or three novels in print in English. Well, that's true. I, he died in 82, and then Blade Runner came out a few months later, so he missed his own fame by a long margin, or a short margin. But in any case, by the time, uh, Blade Runner was a famous movie, but it wasn't always... Uh, obvious until until Philip K. Dick became a kind of a Hollywood go-to um, uh, writer or basis for movies. Uh, it was a, a little low point in in um, Dick's reputation. But when I went into my college advisor, Frederick Jameson, a distinguished literary critic, and said, I'm interested in science fiction, and he immediately whipped out a mimeographed copy of Locust Magazine and said, have you seen this, which I had not. And then he said, you should read Philip K. Dick. He's the greatest living American writer. And he meant that seriously. And I thought, I wonder why, because I had just been introduced to science fiction, and I went out and I read um, Galactic Pot Healer. Oh, wrong one. And I was thinking, <laughs> is this the greatest living um, How I, I obviously need to um, relearn my a sense of aesthetics and everything else. And so I did. And so, and Jonathan is a, um, famously a, a fan of and a, and a scholar of Philip K. Dick and, uh, and just a fellow reader of Dick's amazing body of work, which is crazy and all over the map. And one thing I want to say is the only other time Jonathan and I were ever on stage together, which was at UC San Diego, I don't know how long ago, maybe a decade or a little less, um, we were being asked about Philip K. Dick, and, and we came to the point of, of telling the audience that amongst his maybe 40, four, uh, 40 or 50, yeah. if you count the mainstream novels, uh, say 50 novels, uh, there were maybe 10 that people recognized that are really quite wonderful novels, and then there's another 40. So we were to pick our, our most favorite unknown Philip K. Dick novel, and it was the same one. So we were... <laughs> which is Now Wait for Last Year. Um, and believe me, it's a worthy book to read. It's goofy, but wonderful. So this was the first thing that uh, alerted me to, 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 to your writing, was I knew you'd written about him and were writing. And it was not just that, it was that you were writing about my favorite writer, but that you were um, doing scholarship as well as writing fiction. That you didn't have, you didn't accept any artificial division between uh, working in those two modes uh, excited my imagination. Yeah. And I, was, I, was, I wasn't mistaken, because you, you've been one of the most extraordinarily 
uh, erudite and, and um, far-reaching and, and just widely read people that I've ever gotten in conversation with. And you almost always have a point of reference. And sometimes it's on an obscure novelist, like we talked about Joyce Carey. And, you know, I'd been waiting a long time to have someone talk, who I could talk to about Joyce Carey. <laughs> I don't know how many people even know the name anymore. Yeah. Um, and, but, and then just now, when I was on my way to Greece, you asked me where I was going, and you, um, I haven't read it yet, but you urgently recommended this book, Knossos and the Prophets of Modernism. And this got me thinking about your incredible grasp of historical subjects, and that, in a way, your, your interest in ruins is like a kind of a... a a mirror version of what you write about in your projections, because you write about uh, the present as a ruin, essentially, or you write about future ruins constantly. Yes, it's true. I, I think that science fiction is a historical fiction, and it's meant to situate the reader in a flow of history and actually make you think of your own time as the distant past of some other time. And then you think about our time differently. How will we judge by people uh, 200 years from now or so, or even further? They will look back, we will be in the records, we'll be in the ruins, we'll, uh, they will be judging us the way that we judge. And we're very much too, much too judging of, of people in the past right now. But even and a, um, recognizing what people did with what they had at the time, uh, nevertheless, it gives you a perspective on what you're doing that's different than if you stay stuck on the idea that your present is the most sophisticated moment in human history and always will be, which is only really true for a few months, and then you're superseded by the <laughs> next most sophisticated. It goes on. So the lessons of science fiction are profoundly historical. And I've always been interested in history. I'm very interested in archaeology. This book, Knossos, is spectacular. It's just um, another dissertation of a woman professor at UC San Diego, who I just met a couple months ago when I was there, because it's my alma mater. And she put together, so say, just as an example, and this is the way that history begins to work. You think Knossos, you think Minoan civilization. It was a matriarchy, and they were peaceful, and instead of going to war, they jumped over bulls, and they, they sublimated violence into art and beauty, and it was um, a moment in history almost unique and, and, and therefore precious. Well, this is a story concocted in the 1920s. So between World War I and World War II, they needed this story very badly of a civilization when people were really good and it was a matriarchy and people were peaceful. There was a desperate need for it. So Freud was into it and Robert Graves and H.D. Uh, and the, the whole of literary modernism of the 1920s, they were using Knossos as a science fiction story, looking backwards and saying, there once was a civilization that was good, and maybe, maybe we can escape there or be that way again. 
And, and I've, um, I've constantly been putting them together like this, these, these ideas of past, present, and future as a way of looking backwards. A future is the way of looking backwards, which is odd but true. And now I want to say this, I am not a scholar. I am an English major, and I will never <laughs> stop being an English major, but um, in fact, I was even trying to explain to my wife that Jonathan is a book person, and I'm not a book person. And she's going, like, if you're not a book person, <laughs> I, I, I am uh, amazed and maybe even appalled that there could be book people more bookish than me. But it's true in terms of the physical object. And in well, terms that's of, true. Yeah. yeah the, uh, I, I like, um, I love to read books. I, and then they, they go out the door. I'm not, a, I'm not a book person in the sense that the book people in the room will recognize. And Jonathan certainly is. But we share a lot of interests. And we share a, a love of literature. And this is... It's, it's not uncommon. Many people love literature, but we, we met early on in, indeed, this community. And I would say, hilariously, when I met Jonathan, he was quite a young man, and he was working in a bookstore, and he was a book person. His little apartment was walled with books. I mean, all four, maybe the ceiling was hung with books. Um, and he said, yeah, I'm, I mean, I've gotten a good start in science fiction. I like you guys in science fiction. But I, I'm, I want to be like Ian Banks. I want to be writing science fiction, but also writing mainstream literature, as we called it. I want to just be a crossover artist and do everything that I want to. And I was looking at him. This is in a bar in Berkeley. And I was thinking, well, good luck to you, young man. I mean, that's easier said than done, which is to say nobody does that except for Ian Banks. Because when you came up and were first published in the science fiction genre, it was a ghetto culture. And I mean this in the European sense of an intensely intellectual, esoteric culture. Geniuses were in there, but nobody outside the ghetto walls knew about them. It was completely internalized to that ghetto. Science fiction in America was that kind of a culture. So when Jonathan was saying, well, I'm just going to walk through that wall, and I'm going to be part of the general culture as well as part of the genre culture, I myself already 10 years in the genre uh, inside those walls. I was thinking, well, good luck to you, young man. But in fact, he did exactly that. I mean, he just um, moved back from Berkeley to Brooklyn and did exactly what he said he was going to. That's not easy. And it's kind of a beautiful thing to have watched Jonathan do all that um, well, in these thanks. years since. It's, you know, um, so uh, what I wanted to try to do to keep the focus on you as much as I could in the spirit of introducing you to, to this uh, community was talk about um, the, a couple of the recent books uh, that aren't Ministry for the Future and even read a page if you don't mind, Stan. Not at all. Okay, so the last part of my show and tell and the, most, the last part of my really deliberate rollout here. So uh, a, a recent novel, not the, the most recent novel because he's, Stan is very productive, uh, I'm, I'm, just extraordinarily, intimidatingly productive, uh, but a, a recent novel that I think anyone here would be thrilled to discover if they don't know it. It's called New York 2140. And is this 2017? Yes. Is that right? Yes. And it's, um, although he's not a New Yorker, it's a great New York novel, uh, which accesses by whatever, you know, I mean, if you're not a scholar, what you are is a great researcher or a great reader, you immerse yourself in, I mean, your books are flooded with um, 
points of reference, uh, attributed and non-attributed, uh, uh, you know, um, references and and um, and and. Uh, and, and this book is is an extreme example of this kind of um, magpie uh, panorama, where you've just found so many different things to to activate and bring into the same space. But it also is a kind of a, a, a another version of you tackling the climate catastrophe we live in. And in some ways, I think I want to I want to throw this at you. Uh, in some ways, I think it's it's maybe your more um, uh, what, what do I want to say. Uh, if ministry for the future is a kind of a, a rhetorical utopian uh, gesture, this is actually maybe your realistic lens, mm -hmm. where you say capitalism might not get out of the way, right? It might just continue. Um, so the page I want to read, uh, which I've dog-eared, which I never do to books, but I did it for, for this cause. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, he dog-eared a book. Uh, so this character uh, is, um, uh, wait, no, I have to find the, I have to make sure I've dog-eared the right page. Um, the character is uh, a, a, a reality TV star. Whose, whose, whose reality TV show is that she flies a blimp around the world relocating endangered species from one, from a place where they're no longer suitable, where there's no longer suitable for them, oh, yeah. to give them one last chance. So it's, it's a very, in some ways, very superficial, um, uh, gest, you know, kind of a symbolic gesture. But on the other hand, she's actually moving real animals from a place where they're doomed to a place where they might survive. So it's also not symbolic. And um, she is moving some polar bears to the Antarctic. And we, of course, we have to talk about your career in the Antarctic, <laughs> right? Um, but, uh, but then some people who are, who are obsessed with keeping the Antarctic pure in this degenerating reality uh, of extreme climate change and ocean level rise um, uh, preempt her transporting these polar bears and kill them uh, so that they can't pollute, they can't start eating, uh, you know, can't start pr being predators on species that have never dealt with polar bears before. So that Antarctica will remain Antarctica. And she has this rant and that's what I want to read. She responds to the killing of the polar bears. Um, so. And remember, she's a, she's a reality TV star. So this is, this is to her audience on camera. She says, uh, look, we're in the sixth math, mass extinction event in Earth's history. We caused it. 50,000 species have gone extinct and we're in danger of losing most of the amphibians and the mammals and all kinds of birds and fish and reptiles. Insects and plants are doing better only because they're harder to kill off. Mainly it's just a disaster. So we have to nurse the world back to health. We're no good at it, but we have to do it. It will take longer than our lifetimes, but it's the only way forward. So that's what I do. I know my program is only a small part of the process. I know it's only a silly show. I know that. I even know that my own producers keep stringing me out in these little pseudo-emergencies they engineer because they think it adds to our ratings. And I go along with that because I think it might help. Even though it sometimes scares me to death and it's embarrassing too. But to the extent it gets people thinking about these projects, it's helping. It's part of the larger thing that we have to do. 
That's how I think of it, and I would do anything to make it succeed. I would hang naked upside down above a bay of hungry sharks if that would help the cause, and you know I would because that was one of my most popular episodes. <laughs> Maybe it's stupid that it has to be that way. Maybe I'm stupid for doing it. But what matters is getting people to pay attention and then to act. So, okay, I'm going to just jump to the part of this rant that really obsesses me here. Um, look, it's messy now. There are mixes of every possible kind going on. It's a mongrel world. We've been mixing things up for thousands of years, poisoning some creatures and feeding others and moving everything around. Ever since humans left Africa, we've been doing that. So when people start to get upset about this, when they begin to insist on the purity of some world, of some place or some time, it makes me crazy. I can't stand it. It's a mongrel world and whatever moment they want to hold on to, that was just one moment. It's fucking crazy to hold on to one moment and say that's the moment that was pure and sacred and it can only be like that and I'll kill you if you try to change anything. I've met some of these people. They come to meetings and they throw things at me. Eggs, tomatoes, rocks. They write even worse things from their hidey holes. I've watched them and listened to them. And they all have more money and time than they really need and so they go crazy. And they think everyone else is wrong because they aren't as pure as they are. They're crazy and I hate them. I hate their self-righteousness about their so-called purity. I've seen in person how self-righteous they are. I hate self-righteousness. I hate purity. There's no such thing as purity. It's an idea. The, in the head of religious fanatics, the kind of people who kill because they're so good and righteous. Um, so now there's a group that claiming to be defending the purity of Antarctica, the last pure place, they call it, the world's national park, they call it. Well, no, it's none of those things. It's the land at the South Pole, a little round continent in an odd position. It's nice, but no more pure or sacred than anywhere else. Those are just ideas. It's part of the world. There were beach forests there once. There were dinosaurs and ferns. There were jungles. There will be again someday. Meanwhile, if that island can serve as a home to keep the polar bears from going extinct, extinct, then that's what it should be. So it's the rant against purity that I'm interested in here. But also, it's the, so it's, I mean, there's William Carlos Williams, no ideas but in things, right? Mm -hmm. The polar bears are things. The purity is an idea. Um, now, so Stan has spent... He has, was it wintered over or summered over in Antarctica? Summer. Summered over. He went, he went to the station and lived there uh, as part of, you should name the program because I'll get it wrong. The, the, it's, the, it's the National Science Foundation's Antarctic Artists and Writers Program. Great. Yeah. And the Trump administration killed it and we've just brought it back. Yeah. Um, and this is exemplary of a, sense in which you are, while you don't have a, a, a TV show where you move polar bears around in a blimp, you are actually incredibly, for a writer, embedded in the, the real world. And that gives me this chance to advertise this other book that I think is so extraordinary, which is even more recent, called The High Sierra, A Love Story. So this is you writing about your life in the mountains, in the Sierras. And it's, a, it's full of climbs and full of photographs, many of them taken by you or, yeah. or your friends on climbs. And, you know, I mean, Stan has, has lived as a, uh, you know, he begins, what, as a, a surfer, surfer dude? Yeah. Uh, a, a mountain climber, and, um, and you are a, a, a stonemason over <laughs> at your place in... No, no. <laughs> the, all of these are not 
quite right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I was a body surfer for sure. My boyhood, my youth, the ocean saved my sanity in Orange County and in San Diego County, Southern California. Body surfer only. We didn't have we didn't have a way to get a surfboard to the beach from where we lived. We, we took our fins down there and body surfed. And then, I'm not a mountain climber. <laughs> I am a Sierra hiker. I stay off vertical faces. I'm scared of anything worse than class two out of class one, two, three, four, and five. And, and two means if you were to fall, you would do no worse than sprain an ankle. So I would say I'm a scrambler and a Sierra person. But climbers, I, I actually, part of the point of this book, The High Sierra, is to argue against, cli uh, against climbing, or let's say against putting your life in danger for fun. Um, I don't believe in it. There's something decadent about it. Or, or uh, I'm now become convinced that the people who do climb are under a compulsion, and it isn't really their fault. So they aren't. They aren't decadent. They are uh, crazy. <laughs> so, um, uh, but uh, but in a good way. I mean, they have a purpose in life. But I'm not a climber. Okay. Um, and I'm definitely not a stonemason. But I do <laughs> play with the rocks on Mount Desert Island, and I, I love it dearly. Um, arranging glacial cobble into a uh, artfully patterned wall is uh, endlessly fun. And every winter, the freeze-thaw cycle knocks it down again, and I get to start all over again. So. It's very much uh, Sisyphus in, a, in the best possible way, in the fun way. So I'm going to air out my big idea for, for this. And then, and then I'll, stop, uh, I'll, I'll stop strategizing, and we can just talk about whatever we talk about, or we can start to invite questions. This tension between, I mean, so you are, you've really relished the, the, the natural universe in a way that a book like this is an extraordinary testament to, but it was already true before you you wrote about it at all, because you didn't begin begin as a uh, you know writing accounts of the natural world. You wrote about Mars, but you write about uh, physical actuality even in your projected stories. You're, um, I think you're you're sort of on the side of those polar bears. I mean, I don't think that rant is you exactly, but I think that it represents a part of you that's in tension with the fact that you have also committed your life to this intensely abstract uh, ether that is language. You write books and you live in this world of, uh, of concepts and language helplessly. And one of the things that is so interesting about the High Sierra book is that it ends up being a book about naming. Because a lot of what you end up thinking about when you're out there is how the names of the different peaks or features are um, uh, either good or, or bad or terrible because they're named for people who should be, sh shouldn't be honored with, with the names of mountain peaks. Or they have correct, I mean correct is a strange word, they have older Native American names that have been supplanted by very cursory, r relatively random, <clears throat> randomly assigned non-native names, and those that, that should be reverse engineered. So it becomes a book partly about the helpless desire to move language out into that physical space. And I just see this tension percolating in your work. Yeah. Well, part of this begins to go back to our discussion of 
genre beginning, science fiction, which I fell in love with when I was about 20, which is, for science fiction, for that crowd, that's a little bit old for when you fall in love with science fiction. But uh, I didn't even know it existed until I was an undergraduate, and I did fall in love with it hard. I think my Orange County youth, being a kid on the, in the ocean and out in the orange groves, that I was under the impression that I was living a contemporary existence to Huckleberry Finn. And then that turned out not to be true, and it knocked me for a loop, and I became, uh, when I ran into science fiction, that was the obvious genre for me. And now that it's the obvious genre for the world, it's very, <coughs> very satisfying indeed. But um, science fiction in those times was written by a bunch of New Yorkers who lived in an apartment. And <laughs> when they went to another planet, it was like the ice planet, or it was the sand planet, or it was the jungle planet. Um, uh, the, it was an indoor literature. It was an engineering thing. And so being inside spaceships, or being on Trantor, which is just Manhattan taking over a whole planet, this was natural to them, and they were good at it. But it was um, what I called eventually the cardboard sets problem from Star Trek, where it was clear that the sets were made of cardboard. And in science fiction, when they did go to these other planets, the people writing about them, quite good writers, brilliant writers, and mostly men, not all, but they didn't seem to have much sense of the land. And I thought, I can bring the Sierras into science fiction. I'll make Mars into the Sierra Nevada. It's cheating like crazy to do so. But if I put what I know about the Sierras on Mars, I can make a more vivid-feeling Mars than anybody who'd ever written about Mars before, for whom it was just an idea. So it was my game to play. It was, my, it was something I could bring out of my life into literature. And so literature has always been the thing, like, like a religion. Okay, it's my religion, the church of literature. How can I bring my own voice into it? The experiences I had in the natural world were stories to tell. And so then I had to change science fiction to make it more amenable to outdoor literature. And we had a, a mutual friend and teacher, Ursula Le Guin. She was good at this. Uh, she was, um, her planets in her early novels were uh, more uh, vividly there than the earlier generation's planets. And so she was a, a, a definite exemplary figure uh, how to go about doing this. Bring what you know out of your life into your literature. This is a very simple lesson, but for me, it's, it's, it was what I had to bring. And I know that my Mars books had their impact partly because I would sometimes go up into the Sierra and I would write what I was seeing at a pond. Like, okay, there's a verge, and no, oh, there's a frog, and there's some nuts edge. Wish it wasn't in my garden. It looks better up here. And, and I would write down a description of it. I'd put it directly into Blue Mars, the terraform Mars. Just took it home, wrote it up, and so, you know, Sachs, the scientist character, he's sitting there kind of autistically looking at a pond. Oh, how realistic, this Robinson. He must have been to Mars to write that book. Yes, I had indeed <laughs> gone to the place and written it down. So it's been a, um, it's not so much attention as a, as a, a fountain mm -hmm. of, of uh, information and experiences so that my literature has something of my own in it and not just, and everybody does this and I do this myself, books out of books out of books. I wrote a New York novel. I've only spent a couple months of my life in New York and usually two days at a time. But every American has an inner New Yorker. <laughs> you can hear the accent, you can hear the rant, 
And if you just channel it, every American can do New York if you wanted to. At least this is what I felt as I, I would write these citizen chapters out of the New York book and I would just be um, typing as fast as I could. It was like taking down dictation from somebody else. So there's always books out of books, stories out of other stories, and the stuff that you know because you read it, that's very intense and real to me. But then the stuff that you know because you did it, that's, it's important to throw that in too. And you've just done this with a Brooklyn novel, so you know exactly what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, well, it's striking me suddenly that we are, we've crossed in one sense that I've, I, early on, and now, now I live in the West a lot of the time, and I spend time in the real desert, but I was writing about an image and an idea of the West in a couple of early novels when it was a pure projection, but I was watching John Ford films, and I made my Mars out of watching, you know, a film set in Monument Valley. Yeah. So it's somewhere between cardboard and, and, and your experience. I was, I was saturating in, in one mediated version of, of a real landscape. Well, there's an interesting thing. If you read enough of Jonathan's books, then there are the ones that are about New York. And so um, Chronic City and Motherless Brooklyn, Forces of Solitude. People should not forget um, Chronic City just because it's across the river in Manhattan. Um, and then this new one, uh, and then also the arrest being here on this peninsula, um, you can see these um, uh, knowledge of place, that this is, um, and I want to reject the current workshopping term, world building. There's something wrong about that term, that concept, that a novel should be read so that you learn the details. This is some kind of bad reading of Tolkien, like as if there was only the Cimmerillion and not the Lord of the Rings. World building is not the right term, but the way that an experience of a place and, the, and a community can then be expressed in a novel, it's surely one of the things the novel is there to do. Yeah. And um, it, is a, it is a serious pleasure to be talking with a, um, a true novelist because you know a lot of people write novels and there are a lot of novels out there and there are a lot of really good novels out there, like more than any of us can read in a single lifetime. So I'm not saying that we're as rare as um, you know phoenix eggs or anything like that. But um, there aren't that many of them. And, um, <laughs> and, and there aren't many that I've enjoyed as much as, as Jonathan's novels. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be doing this again. We Rarely have we done this. Well, so um, I think that in a moment, maybe we'll, we'll turn and get other voices into this mix, which doesn't mean we'll stop talking to one another because I think it'll catalyze things, but to hear some questions. But so you just reminded me of another thing that in a way circles back to your dissertation on Philip K. Dick, which is the lens that you looked at him with. I mean, Jameson, your, your advisor, was a, <laughs> is a great theorist of post-modernity. Yes. And he brings a lot of uh, theoretical and philosophical and, uh, you know, uh, uh, political tools to anything he writes about. And you do that under his guidance, you do that with the Philip K. Dick novels, but you also did something no one had done with Philip K. Dick at that point, so far as I can tell, which is you looked at him as a traditionalist, a novelist who was fascinated by societal systems and always uh, very deliberately put together um, social systems of high, middle, and low in each of his novels. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, 
you made transparent one of the things that I was responding to without having a name for it when I was reading Philip K. Dick, which is that he was schooled in things like Balzac. Yes. In, 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 in the traditional social novel which requires multiple third-person point of view to, to do what it needs to do, to show you the world as a series of intersubjective situations and fundamentally political ones, yeah. fundamentally to do with um, economics, how people live, and that unless you include those structural uh, terms, your novel is going to be too much inside the head of one character or one sensibility. Yeah. And you adopted the same method. Your, 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 no, your novels are, on the whole, extremely traditional in a sense. You, you care to do the social novel the way Zola or Balzac or, you know, uh, that, that it has to be, or, you know, or Dickens. Yeah. Uh, that there has to be a social system that's made transparent. However eccentric or charming or fascinating or how much identification you may feel with individual characters, how much fun you may be having with them at some point, you're also going to switch and see them in their um, economic and social, political uh, relation to the community and the, 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 the society. Yes. Well, that's, I would agree with all of that. And it is Jamesonian. He, his uh, early famous book was called The Political Unconscious, and that every literary text has a, in a, an unconscious political bias in it that uh, loads the dice. And he also is very famous for defining postmodernism as the moment that comes after realism, modernism, postmodernism. And postmodernism would be, say, Pynchon or anything after the energy crisis of 1973, anything after high modernism, which would be between the wars and be people like Joyce or Proust or Virginia Woolf. And high modernists, they went deep into the individual consciousness of, a, of their, the central character. Leopold Bloom and Stephen Dedalus and Ulysses. This is a classic modernist text, or Faulkner going on at gigantic length inside the heads of his poor Southerners, um, the lost aristocracy, etc. That's modernism and uh, brilliant stuff. But before modernism was realism, Balzac is a great example where every novel is part of a larger society so that a novel can be the, what's going on inside an individual and then their family relations. And then what's about that individual and their job and their community, their city and their society? And then beautifully, I think, what science fiction brought to the picture was what about their relationship to the planet that they're on? And this planetary aspect is what made science fiction accidentally ahead of its time, being ecological and biospheric and uh, extending the umbrella of what's important to human life is the actual biosphere itself. Science fiction brought that to the party almost accidentally because we were thinking rocket ships and going to other planets. When you bring it back here, it still obtains. So what I realized early on was postmodernism is that moment when everything is pastiche. Like The Sting as a movie, it isn't really a 30s movie. It's a glossy reproduction of a 30s movie and it's postmodern. And it comes after uh, it comes with the electrification and nuclear power. I mean, there's a kind of a infrastructural or historical basis for the m moment of postmodernism, but also 
new writers going, well, I need to do something new, and everything's been done before. You cannot write a modernist novel better than Marcel Proust. You just can't. So what are you going to do? You get literary fiction, which I'm going to call wheat tea. I'm going to call late to the party. And effectively, although there are some many good novels being written these days that are under the name of literary fiction and still doing modernist texts, they're quite good. I'm still bored with them as an idea, even though I read them and, and sometimes enjoy them as much as anything. But what postmodernism says, I'm going to pretend to be a 19th century writer. I'm going to pretend to be a pre-modernist. I'm going to write as if I were a Balzac. I'm not going to worry too much about the stream of consciousness of individual characters, and I'm not going to spend 10 years to write a novel. I'm going to take pride in being a commercial novelist and grind it out like Philip K. Dick, hopefully you know, without the amphetamines <laughs> and not quite at his speed of production. But a, a commercial novelist takes pride in making a commercial product and going back in time to something before modernism, to realism. And the great realists would be like George Eliot with Middlemarch, where you have the individual, and it's, and it's well-written, and it's about the individual and their society and history altogether. And you can do that now in postmodernism, and you just like the crazy. You are the, the one and only quite crazy and hard to typify uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Strange and uh, singular because not trying to keep up with the present of saying, I can go back to the past. It's a postmodern trick, but I don't even care about these categories anymore. I want to tell a novel that does what novels used to do. And I guess I can kind of, we can lead into the question and answers and maybe if one t people want to talk about ministry for the future, the novel can still do the total package for readers in ways that literary fiction gave up on. It can situate you in your relationship to the history of your time on this planet in a way that most other art forms could never do. You can still do what Balzac used to do for his society and Dickens. It's sort of like, what does this world even mean? I read them and I situate myself better so people love novels for that um, creation of meaning and of orientation to history itself. And so uh, seizing on all this, seeing, and, and Jameson helped, uh, science fiction helped, Philip K. Dick with his uh, extremely simple style, which comes out of really Jane Austen or something like that, um, take one person's point of view, follow the scene from that person's point of view, and you're right there. Third person limited, free and direct style. There are literary names for it, workshop names for it. Third person limited is the workshop term from the mid 20th century workshops that I came out of. It's a clumsy, but you see what I mean. In the next chapter, you're in some other character's point of view. And Dick does this in every novel. Maybe it's the big protagonist who's rich, then the little protagonist who's poor. And, or maybe it's a man and then a woman in a relationship. And when you switch point of views, the next character who's talking, looking back at that character that you thought you knew because you were inside them, and the second character thinks that character is a lunatic, possibly villainous. Well, the reader goes, wait a second, I didn't see that before because I was inside that character's mind. It's simple but effective. It, it, it creates what, this is another stupid term, three-dimensional characters. I just think it creates richer characters that you're not... Uh, when you see it from someone's point of view, you're not seeing that person very well because you're seeing it through their eyes. Someone else looking at them 
makes for a very rich sense of characterization in the older sense. Not in the modernist sense of, I'm going to spend 10,000 pages inside the, the ranting mind of a single character. Interesting, but almost narcissistic. I'm going to do characterization in that everybody is different to different people in a relational way and tell the story from that. And for sure, uh, Philip K. Dick, um, that's probably the main thing I got out of him. And it leads to something like Ministry for the Future, where I, I basically had what you could call low protagonicity. There's high protagonicity, where you just have one protagonist, you follow him through the whole novel, and that's the person you know at the end of the novel. Low protagonicity, well, there's like 50 characters, and none of them are hugely distinct, but it's important to keep a lead character, probably. And then you have a spread, and that's certainly what I did in Ministry for the Future. And um, Well, you'd built up to it. I mean, the yes. New York 2140 is pretty well distributed, too. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah. and the, the Mars trilogy stacks up characters. I mean, it's, a, it's a working method. There are people yeah. online who do concordances of your characters. I don't like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's do what we just promised to do. And... and um, here's some questions. Because this is being recorded, uh, uh, we'll repeat the questions. I'll make sure that everyone hears them too, but um, be loud enough that we can hear you well enough to repeat you. And anyone, please. Hey. Hi. Hi. Oh. Thank you, John. We'll go one, two. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, so should we try to repeat yep. it? Yeah. So the question was, uh, t correct me if I get this wrong, uh, when Stan was talking about the time between the world wars and the, the kind of invention of science fiction in that period, the, the great pulp uh, you know, explosion of, of science fiction and a lot of the famous writers begin in that period, the, the foundational writers begin in that period, what, what was the corresponding response in the culture? Well, here's my uh, take on it. Um, science fiction was really a thing from the 19th century industrial revolution. So you get Mary Shelley and Frankenstein as a start. If things go on, which is the title of a story by Heinlein, you'll get to something different. And that different thing is coming, and it'll be an interesting story, and things will change. Let's read about it now. It, it, it has the power of prophecy. It's like uh, Jeremiah or Isaiah. It has Old Testament prophet power. Or the ancient mariner grab you by the color. You want to know what's coming? Or if you keep going on the way you're going, you're going to hell. It has that power to grab you. And then between World War I and World War II, the American pulp magazines proliferated. You could read your nurse novel or your cowboy novel or your jungle novel or your science fiction novel, and that would be the future. And then there'd be weird tales, which would be fantasy a subset of science fiction at the time. And there were mostly guys who were dreamy teenage boys thinking, I want to get off this farm and into the city and into the future, and I'm going to be an engineer, and I'm going to go to Mars in a rocket ship myself, which I may even invent. 
So that was the uh, creation of the American science fiction ghetto, as I called it. Small, intense group of hyper-intellectual young urban men, they moved from the farms, like Jack Williamson, came into the city, read obsessively, wrote, and they were, the general culture, they would run into someone like Ray Bradbury and it would blow their minds. Go, oh my gosh, this is extraordinary stuff. There's nobody like Ray Bradbury, except there were about 50 people like Ray Bradbury. But, you know, the tokenism of you pick one out of a small crowd and say that's the only one worth reading, it simplifies things. So it was a, indeed a subculture, but America loves its subcultures. All of us are probably members of three or four different subcultures, you know, the fencing club or the sailing club or the um, um, doing quilting or, you know, the various subcultures that we all enjoy. Science fiction was one of those in that era. And so when it burst on the world a couple of times, when the 60s burst, suddenly the 60s felt like science fiction. Science fiction was hot. And it looked like, oh my gosh, the future really is happening right now, so let's read um, Heinlein and Frank Herbert and Asimov and Clark. Uh, let's read the new wave, these exciting young people. There were women coming in, and the feminists of Joanna Russ and Ursula Guin, Kate Wilhelm and Susie McKee Charnas, who just passed away, wonderful writer, a whole crowd of them. One of the things that the feminists of the 70s realized is, if I write science fiction and set this on a planet where it's all women or where feminism has won, then I can do utopian fiction and I can explain how things could be better. Boom! It was another breaking down of the walls. And so I came just at the end of that. The ghetto walls have been knocked down. And you could walk out there into the world and speak to everybody in America. So that's my pocket history of how it, how it came about. Great. So there was a second. Yeah. Yes, yeah. This sort of segues into that question. I read an article about you. I read about Red Star. Oh, yeah. You know, you must know. I know Red Star. Yeah. And it was, uh, in brief, it was a, a communist utopia on Mars. Yes. And I, I, love, I love that book. Um, and I'm curious to hear what your, what your impression of it was. I mean, it was quite polemic, but. Well, it's a, it's so, a, I'll do the quick oh, yes. Uh The question's about Stan's impression of Red Star, the communist utopia uh, set on Mars, and, and whether it was an uh, influence or, uh, <laughs> or uh, something you wanted to make well, reference to. My character, uh, Arkady, Arkady Bogdanov, is named after Bogdanov, the author of Red Star. Um, I love that book. And, I, and here's what happened. Percival Lowell, he says to the world, there are canals on Mars, and there must be Martians who are getting the polar ice caps and taking the water down to the equator. So there's a dying civilization on Mars of Martians. In the 1910s and 1920s, a perfectly uh, ordinary crowds of well-educated people all over the world could believe that they were out there on Mars. That was ordinary for a crowd like us in the 1910s and 20s. So each nation took on this news in its own style. Uh, Kurd Lazowitz in Germany, zwei Planeten, on Mars and then Earth, those are the two planets, and on Mars they have a techno-utopia, and the trains run on time, everything's perfect, they have an excellent, excellent uh, train system, et cetera, et cetera. This is the German one. Um, Russia, it's a communist utopia. Bogdanov played chess with Lenin, and uh, he lost. 
And he was in trouble for a long time, but at the end of his life, he exchanged his blood in a transfusion and saved a young man's life and lost his own um, in a blood transfusion experiment, trying to, uh, um, it was peculiar, but he was a, an excellent writer, well regarded in his time, and indeed, people argued over Red Star. Is it Menshevik or is it Bolshevik? Would Lenin approve it of it or not, etc.? And it influenced Russian history and the revolution. And it's a good book still to uh, think about uh, what communism would be like if it was uh, active in the world. Because the Martians were older than us, they were more advanced. They were at a later stage of history. And then the British one was H.G. Wells, The War of the Worlds. And so just like the poor Tasmanians had been slaughtered by the British, the Martians came down and were slaughtering the British in England itself. And so Wells, just a very smart and great science fiction writer, flipped the script and said, what would you feel like if a big civilization came down and started killing you? And then the only thing that saved the humans was, in fact, a virus. You know, it's, it's a, Wells was so smart in so many ways, a superb writer and thinker. And then in America, Edgar Rice Burroughs. John Carter of Mars. The women had six breasts, and there were um, princes, there were dragons. It was the silliest crap that you could possibly imagine. And so each nation had its own version of Mars in the, in the early post-war period. And it used to be so embarrassing to run through this um, um, <laughs> proliferation of national theories of Marsness. But here's the thing. It was Percival Lowell was the American Mars fantasist. And then Edgar Rice Burroughs was just a, a, a commercial silly guy. Yeah, but Stan, am I, am I right that the astronomer Lowell was seeing, uh, in his lens, he was seeing his own, the blood vessels in his eyes? Those were the canals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was just a reflection concoction. of the... Uh, there, were, there were no canals on lens. Mars. Yeah. This was Lowell. He wanted it bad. He wrote a science fiction story. He claimed that it was real. That happens a lot. Uh, so really, you don't have to be that embarrassed about America as a national expression of literary stupidity, which is really what Burroughs was, because Lowell himself was literary. He made that stuff up, and the whole world went nuts for until they the astronomers looked up on Mars and said, "You know, there's there's no oxygen in his atmosphere. In fact, there's no atmosphere at all. I mean, what were those Martians supposed to be breathing? And so it was in the 50s that the, the Mars dream began to fall apart. And Bradbury's great book, The Martian Chronicles, is about the dream falling apart. And the Martians are already there because it's our imaginations. So Bradbury had tremendous instincts for the great story. And so he told the great story at the end of that Mars era. There was a question over here. Hey. Um, this might be really silly, um, perhaps erotic, but um, I was inspired by your talk about uh, your the literary eras. Um, can a story uh, that's historical fiction or actually science fiction, something that's set in the past or set in the future, be high modernist, do you think? Be written in that style? Or? There are a couple of attempts. Yeah. Oh, so this, the question is, is there any way to make science fiction uh, congruent with high modernism? Yes. I mean, and there have been some, some glorious attempts. Oh, yeah. Uh, Brian Aldiss, uh, Barefoot in the Head. I mean, in a way, J.G. Ballard is also a, a modernist science fiction writer because yeah. he, he doesn't care to 
persuade you of anything except his own obsessive sensibility. It it's all comes out of his, you know, his obsessional point of view. Well, I think that the, what in science fiction we call the new wave is really the period 1965 to 1975. And in fact, I would make the case that every a science fiction writer writing in those years was in effect doing the new wave, even older writers who were quite uh, conservative in their technique and their politics. Those years took them over and seized them up, and modernism ran into science fiction. So for about 10 years, the great example to me, well, there are several of them, um, the crowd of the new wave that I would, uh, but the, since we're talking with a great New York novelist, Samuel R. Delaney yeah. with his Dahlgren, that's Dahlgren a great is modernist probably the text. And then Ballard for sure in England, and also um, several other in England, uh, M. John Harrison or um, uh, Aldous indeed. It goes on and on. There's a whole crowd of them in America. Joanna Russ, oh my God, speaking of New Yorkers, her, the female man, and her whole small body of work, high modernist and brilliantly written, and not so much concerned with science or the future, but with showing us the present through a lens that has the science fiction bag of tricks, but it's doing high modernism. And then I would mention also Gene Wolfe mm. and also Thomas Dish. I was going to say Dish. Dish yeah. is also a modernist writer whose science fiction was his genre often, but in tangential ways. He didn't care that much about it. He wanted to write what he wanted to write, but he was a high modernist in, in terms of his style. And, and Gene Wolfe was a, a native genius, always within the science fiction community, seldom noticed outside it. And his books are so filled with um, um, six-armed monsters and aliens and robots and, um, and planets and all of the apparatus of space opera, but it's so brilliantly written and so deep and subtle that I would say Gene Wolfe is a high modernist also. And this is the thing about the postmodern period, you can choose to be, um, you can choose like me to be pre-modern and just do realism or whatever I'm doing. You can be postmodern and you can play all the games of the modern age, or you could do, say, I don't care that it's not 1925, I'm gonna be James Joyce anyway. And you get someone like Thomas Pynchon, who is as good as it gets, and yet he's writing his books well after the modernist period, and just says, look, this is what I wanna do, this is what I like. So we have a certain freedom now that I think is extremely liberating. Great. More. Hey there. Go, oh, sir. Go, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was really intrigued with your comment about true meanings. Oh, yeah. Because Ursula's wedding, and I've been haunted by that for 45 years at least, about true meanings. And it just seems to me that in this day and age, the naming of things becomes more and more obfuscated. It's gets, there's more and more subtleties and nuances to it, and we're getting further and further away from being able to name something and know something. Could you speak about how significant that is to you, what you were really leading to when you were uh, talking about the name of the piece? So the question's about yeah. What lies inside this fascination with names and how the, how the problem of naming has changed? Uh, I want to say that I am not particularly good at giving my characters names. I feel clumsy and inept. I feel like the thing to do is to go with Charles Dickens and make them symbolical. 
So if Anne Claiborne happens to be a defender of the earth, uh, Claiborne, you know, I w I'd say be obvious and symbolic, but then I also pick names like they're just out of the telephone book. They have no resonance whatsoever. Um, and so I, I've had to play games with my own naming things so that all of my liars are named Frank. So I have like 10 Franks spread through my body of work. <laughs> These are games for my readers. If they notice, they can enjoy it. Oh, here's another Frank. Oh God, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, a variation on a theme kind of a thing. But I, it, I feel awkward at it. Maybe I've written too many novels and I just feel like I spin the dial and name comes up. It doesn't resonate. I don't have Le Guin's talent. She was good at it. She thought about it, and she had gifts. Um, but I want to go back to what Jonathan brought up. There, in the names in the Sierra Nevada, I call. I have chapters called "The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly," and then a last one saying a program to change the names. All the names for mountain peaks in the Sierra Nevada were given by European settler colonials, white people, between like 1860 and 1930. And there's good, there's bad, there's ugly. And the ugliness, I just want to say, is we name peaks after people, if we do that, in order to honor them. And then if you learn things later about that person, that makes you realize that that was a repugnant person and, and did material harm in the world by way of their ideas, like people dying, and, or people starving, or people being imprisoned or enslaved because of their ideas that they promulgated. Well, we ought to take those names away. It's just a game. The names there are arbitrary. So if you have, uh, I mean, Mount Spencer or uh, Ernest Heckel, Mount Heckel in the Sierras, which you do because there's an evolution group. Well, several of the famous evolutionary scientists of the 19th century were scientific racists who did enormous harm and encouraged the Nazis in their own um, uh, uh, genocidal activities. So those names ought to go away, and we ought to think about, well, actually, women are seriously underrepresented in this era, because 1860 to 1930, you have Lake Doris, but you don't have Rosalind Franklin. You know, there, there are um, habits of mind and of history that we can play the game of names up there. So I'm, I must admit, even there, I'm still playing the game. Since this is a game, I'm being playful. In, the, in my suggestions that we change the name in the Sierras, well, the U.S. Geological Survey does not approve. You know, that, it's not going to happen anytime soon because these are legal names, and it takes an act of Congress to get a name changed in the wilderness area, uh, area today. It's actually legally the case that you cannot change a name in wilderness areas in the United States without an act of Congress. A couple new names have come up recently in the Sierras. Andrea Lawrence, who was a... a, a a gold medalist skier in 1960 and also a strong environmentalist for the Sierra Nevada, Mount Andrea Lawrence. Obama had to sign off on that. So this is a game that I'm playing, and I guess I'll end this by saying we have Mount Whitney. Whitney was uh, arrogant and wrong and kind of a jerk. And it was employees who did everything, and he himself was completely wrong about how Yosemite Valley came to be, etc. Right on the shoulder of Mount Whitney is another mountain. It's called Mount Muir. And so I've recommended that we reverse those names, that Mount Whitney should be called Mount Muir, and Mount Muir, the current little shoulder knob, should be called Mount Whitney, which is about what that guy deserves. Well, I'm not holding my breath on this one, but it is a fun game to play to think about names. So maybe we'll take a couple more. There, I, there was. Uh, 
someone on the side. Yeah. Oh God! Oh God! And my question was about naming, and I'm glad you picked up on that subject. Oh my God! Beyond what uh, Jonathan said, because you also made a comment about that we don't judge the past very well. Yes. Yes. And it seemed like that comment didn't quite hold up against the. Well, fair enough. This, you bring up an excellent point here that, okay, I'm judging Whitney for being that kind of arrogant jerk. I'm judging Ernest Heckel for being um, a scientific racist that caused harm. It's true. I, I, we always judge the past. But there's a thing called presentism that is very rife in our culture today. Historians use this term presentism. You judge, say, uh, Francis Bacon or Thomas Cromwell by our own standards, by our own ethics. Whereas in the year 1500, they were in a completely different historical context. They didn't have our own highly developed sense of justice. And so um, to judge them using our criteria of our own time, I have been offended by um, critiques of John Muir. I've been offended by critiques of Alfred Kroeber, the anthropologist who was Ursula Le Guin's father. And anytime people have been judged in ways that I personally find offensive, and to tell you, Whitney was a perfectly okay scientist and a, and, a, and a great bureaucrat. He was wrong geologically and he was condescending to Muir. These are not crimes. But if they were crimes, if they were saying that some ethnic groups are evolutionarily superior to other ethnic groups whom we can therefore kill, then, then they deserve to be judged. Even in their own time, they were wrong. And there were people in their own time who objected to them. There were abolitionists who were saying slavery was wrong. So you do have to, I think what you said is very important. You have to keep a balanced sense of, we have these values now, the past had different values. What were they doing in their own value set? And then we do this game of comparison. And here's what science fiction can bring in once again. 200 years from now, they're going to be looking at us and going, these fucking idiots. <laughs> they torched the world. The, all the mammals are dead. All the amphibians are dead, and they didn't do anything when they could have. And we can't fix it. So this judgment from the future should weigh on us like a a thousand pounds of weight and change us all. So it, 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 thank you for that point. Great. Yeah, just a, a, I guess the last couple. Uh, and this is a pessimist question, but um, man, I admire Mr. Obama was on television saying that he thought optimistically we might not be able to stop at two and a half degrees global warming and we'll stop at three which implied you didn't quite get what the tipping point was. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you think about whether our leaders and the world has actually grasped what the tipping point is all about and when it will happen. Yeah, uh, if people heard a question about tipping points and the rise in... Question is yeah. whether our leaders can grasp the, the uh, real scientific distinctions between a, a rise of 2.5 versus 3 and what, and what the implications would be or whether they're diluted. Yeah. yeah, well, 
Um, it's, everybody's uh, in the climate field is worried about this very point right now these days. Um, and I would say that the, the Swedish scientist Johan Rockström, who uh, works, lead, leads the Potsdam Institute for Climatology in Germany, has been crucially important in telling the world that this, these, these um, rises in global annual temperature, that holding it to 1.5 or 2 at the most is not just a political position, but a biosphere necessity to avoid torching the planet, that we have an imperative to keep the global annual rise in temperature below 1.5, and every tenth of a degree above that is more damage. And this used to be, there were people in the crowd called the eco-modernists, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the Ministry for the Future, was they were saying, look, humans are adaptable. This is an arbitrary limit, this 1.5, this 2. They just picked it out of a hat. We go higher, we just adapt. We just adapt. And then you combine that with the wet bulb 35 temperature, in which humans do not adapt, they die within hours of hyperthermia. And that's why I wrote Ministry for the Future was a, a deliberate response to try to say to the eco-modernists who were so blithe, and they were mostly humanists and economists. They were not medical people, they were not scientists really. They were saying, well just, humans are so adaptable, but it isn't true. So what I'm seeing though in the last well, since the pandemic, which was a big slap in the face, and I think reoriented people's relationship to reality, to biospherical reality, I think people are now saying, well, wait a second, this is a real limit. And now we're seeing, um, as we creep up, as the emissions continue, we're seeing, wait a second, this is an imperative that we change. And I, I don't think the leaders are behind on this, the leaders. I think there are many leaders, diplomats, policymakers who are fully aware that we are in crisis mode, and that's different and new. So um, it's a fine balancing act here. It's not right to be optimistic. We are in terrible danger. It's not right to be pessimistic because we actually have the means to get it right. We have the means not only to cut emissions rapidly, but we have the means to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in substantial quantities. In other words, we could still lower the temperature. We can't quite deacidify the ocean. There are things we can't do. There are some things we can do. And so we're, we're balanced on a moment of intense danger. And what I find encouraging, and, and so just in the literal sense of it gives people courage, is to know it's not too late. That's a bad concept. There, we can still um, make rapid change and, and, come, and we can still dodge the mass extinction event, which is my current definition of utopian fiction. We dodge a mass extinction event, that's a utopian novel. It's as simple as that. So um, it, this is the message that has to be got, gotten out through the entire society and spread to everybody that you know that we are in terrible danger, but we still have, we can, there's still things we can do, and if we do them, we dodge the mass extinction event. So this has become the unfortunate thing of being an English major and a lover of novels is, okay, um, what I'd really like to do is be writing novels, but 
given the world that we're in, given what science fiction is supposed to do as a genre, I'm suddenly stuck as a climate fiction writer and a, and a climate speaker. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible, um, it's a category error in many ways, and it's a, to shift from being a novelist to being a motivational speaker or an op-ed writer is <laughs> a terrible, disastrous come down in my personal fortunes <laughs> and my um, emotional life. But it's necessary work. I can't really shirk it given the situation that we're in. So I'll give it a few more, um, you know, I'll give it a few more wax and then hope to get back to novel writing. <laughs> so. Uh, I think just one last one, and then we'll thank Stan so much for coming and talking with us. Please. Um, so in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be teaching a group of 10 to 13-year-olds on fantasy and climate fiction. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for young writers. Young writers? Well, oh my gosh. Um, I, I, I try to talk to young writers quite often, um, but I'm losing my feeling that I, uh, I'm, I'm like losing my grip, which is a physical fact, but I'm losing my grip on my a feeling for what a young writer should do. Um, it, it, there's too much noise. It's, it, 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 there's too much culture. There's the internet. It's hard to uh, um, reach an audience. Um, when everybody's talking, then nobody's listening. So, um, well, let me think what I used to say. Write short stories first. Write a lot of short stories. You practice. They only take a week. If they're bad, you throw them overboard. If they're good, they teach you something. So do not start with your big fantasy trilogy as the first thing that you write. <laughs> Now, many people start with their first book as their fantasy trilogy or 10-volume thing, and they do perfectly well. So my advice is limited to my own experiences, and it could be wrong. But it seems to make sense to me that if you practice by writing a whole bunch of little stories, you slowly gather the skills to write longer stories. And then um, uh, write about the things that you would like to read. So if you would like... Hardly anybody wants to read about everybody dying. And um, so, although there is horror fiction and there is dystopia, I would argue against those genres as being inherently unpleasant. They, they don't give the reader enough. Um, and pe people do like them, but I don't know why. So I argue against them. <laughs> and I guess that's about all I can say. Um, the young people today are in a very tough situation of looking at a world that they're not yet in control of and they can see it's going off the rails and that people, adults aren't reacting fast enough. So I guess I would say also channel your anger. Um, make your, uh, hitch your tiger to your chariot, a very important Chinese saying. Um, make your anger a spur to action and to more words and, and it makes your villains more vivid or make your heroes angry. I've been a very angry writer my whole career. I've been, I wrote a book, I wrote a novel a year for many, many years. Well, this is not just um, proving that I'm a commercial writer and I'm proud of it. It's also a, a spur in my butt that I, that I was angry and I needed to write all this stuff down. So I think this is a, maybe a useful thing to say to young people is um, regard your anger as a positive force if it's channeled right into a tool 
and not just a you know blowing up of your head. I don't know. I, I don't teach anymore. There's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Yeah.